kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday. It's exactly 6.01 p.m. And welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Uh, with me tonight is the wonderful and talented Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you tonight, Miss Jeannie? I am wonderful today, Jim. <laughs> and the best producer money can't buy, which is good because I'm still not paying him. Hi, Barry. How are you this evening? Better than I was yesterday. Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> I don't know if anybody's going to notice any sound difference tonight, but um, this is a first. We're all this virtual first. this evening. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> Everything is virtual this evening. And um, I'm going to try to get off the air at 8 exactly, so I'm going to try to slam through as much of this fun stuff as I possibly can. I know we're all excited, right? Come on yeah. now. Well, I I see a lot of humor. The first story I found a lot of humor in. It just Um, makes extra grateful I'm fat and lazy. The the uh, the data trackers, the ones that um, okay. Well, I'll read that one really quick. Uh, What happens to the data collected on us while we sleep? It's only a matter of time until sleep from sleep data from a fitness tracker is used to catch someone cheating on their spouse or to cause health insurance rates to climb because you're not getting a healthy amount of rest, or to reveal to your boss that you're up till 3 a.m. and are probably hungover at work. With the quantified self-trend in vogue and wearables escalating, an alarming amount of users' biometric data is being generated and collected, and there's no oversight preventing it from winding up in the hands of data brokers and advertisers, and with them from getting rich off your information. We already know that the major data brokers like Axcom and Experian collect thousands of pieces of information on nearly every U.S. consumer to paint a detailed personality picture by tracking the websites we visit and the things we search for and buy. These companies often know sensitive things like our sexual preference or what illness we have. Now, with wearables proliferating, it's estimated there will be 200 million, 240 million devices sold by 2019. That profile is just going to get more detailed. Get ready to add how much body fat you have, when you have sex, how much sleep you get, and all sorts of physiological data into the mix. Wherever there's good information that you're collecting about yourself and you're 
quantifying, there's a good chance that it will end up in a profile of you, Michelle Demoy, a health privacy expert at the Center for Democracy and Technology, told me. This is many privacy and security experts, politicians, and the government wringing their hands, worried, yeah, right, that if and when all that granular personal information gathered gets in the hands of advertisers and data brokers, it could be used in ways we never intended or suspected. Biometric data is perhaps the last missing link of personal information collected today, said Jeffrey Chester, Executive Director for Center for Digital Democracy. The great financial windfall for the digital data industry will be our health information gathered through wearables, swallowable pills, and the ever-present Internet of Things, Chester told me. Pharma companies, hospitals, and advertisers see huge profit in our health information. Medical data is super valuable. A stat tossed around a lot is that it's worth 10 times more than your credit card number. If your health data leaks beyond your Fitbit, Jawbone, Apple, or whatever company makes your activity tracker through a security breach, privacy policy loophole, leaky third-party apps, or user sharing, it's up for sale to the highest bidder. Who's the highest bidder? Advertisers are an obvious choice. The more personal the data, the more it's worth to sell you targeted ads. Sensors on fitness wearables, smartwatches, or smartphones can monitor your heart rate, breathing, movement during the night, and other physiological signals to tell whether your sleep is disturbed. It's not hard to imagine sleep data leaked from your Fitbit, eventually leading to ads for sleeping pills or a better mattress or your local Starbucks. Or indirectly, marketers could derive from raised stress levels, poor sleep, and a combination of other behavior that a romance is in trouble, experts have speculated. The info is also obvious interest to insurance agencies who are starting to partner up with fitness trackers to monitor users and reward customers who make healthy choices. That's nice and all, but it can easily flip on its head. Data showing poor health practices could lead to higher insurance premiums. You can see that I stay up till all hours of the night, and perhaps, therefore, I'm a risk. What's more, workplaces are increasingly teaming up with insurance agencies, distributing fitness trackers for employee wellness programs to incentivize preventive health. But in exchange, folks are basically handing all that sensitive data over to their employer, paving the way for potential discrimination if you decide not to participate. Once CVS made employees report their weight, body fat, cholesterol, blood pressure, and blood sugar levels and charged a $50 a month premium for those who refused. Beyond that, experts warned that sleep data could be used by burglars or stalkers to know when you're home in bed. It could be used against you in court. For instance, a car insurance company could subpoena your health data to see you didn't sleep well or long enough the previous night, which led to an accident, one analyst put it out, pointed out. Who will be the first divorce lawyer to identify infidelity in court proceedings? Monitoring sleep or lack thereof could also help prove infidelity. Fitness bands that help measure your sleep patterns can also reveal other data that most people do not want to reveal. Andrew Boyd, a health information sciences professor, wrote in an op-ed for Network World. Who will be the first divorce lawyer to reveal infidelity in court proceedings? Some of them seem a little far-fetched now, but they're really not, said Des Moines. If health trackers become more ubiquitous in our lives, and if these devices start talking to each other, the leakage is inevitable. You may be thinking, but don't gadgets like Fitbit and Apple Watch promise not to sell or share your personal data or at least keep it anonymous. Yes, but that's not the end of the story, thanks to the vague and ever-changing nature of most of our privacy policies. There are various ways the data can leak out, accidentally or not, and it's not very hard to tie the information back to you, even with anonymizing software, researchers have found. Look at the privacy policies of fitness trackers like Fitbit, Jawbone, and smartwatches from major firms like Apple, Google, or Microsoft, 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 that double as a tracker if you download with health apps. 
They usually say something like, we don't sell your data to third parties unless it's de-identified. In other words, your name, address, social security, or other identifying info is stripped out, but it's not very hard to leak that data back to you. Uh, it just kind of goes on and on from there. So wh- where did you find humor in that? Jeannie. Hello? Cool. Jeannie must have st- stepped away. Oh, okay. Uh, well, all I can say is, if I ever get a job where they want me to wear something like that, uh, the device will end up tracking uh, how my manager's <laughs> anal performance is going. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just I don't like those. I mean, it's it's bad enough that um, the warehouses for my company actually have these ID tags you have to wear in their, their RFID chips so they identify everyone Well, at and least you're where not they're going, a, what they're doing. The poor little Amazon employees running around huh. the warehouses with their little handsets beeping at them all the time. Oh, yeah. You've taken too long to get to the next item. Beep. <laughs> You've taken too long getting it off the shelf. Beep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... Let's see. South Carol lawmaker proposes registry for journalists. State Representative Mike Pitts, uh, Republican of Lawrence, filed a bill Tuesday in the South Carolina House to establish a, quote, responsible journal and registry to be operated by the South Carolina Secretary of State. The bill summary says the bill would establish requirements for persons before working as a journalist for a media outlet and for media outlets before being a journalist, for hiring a journalist. Summary also includes registration fees and sets fines and criminal penalties for violations. A person seeking to register with the state as a journalist would have to submit a criminal record background check and affidavit from a media outlet attesting to the applicant's journalistic competence. The proposed registry is ridiculous and totally unconstitutional, says Bill Rogers, executive director of the South Carolina Press Association. The state's newspaper is a member of the Press Association. Government cannot require journalists to register, Roger said, citing the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, which ensures freedom of the press. The bill is not a reaction to any particular news story, Pitts told the Post and Courier newspaper, but was intended to stimulate discussion over how he sees gun issues being reported. It strikes me as ironic that the first question is constitutionality from a press that has no problem demonizing firearms, Pitts said. With this statement, I'm talking primarily about the printed press and TV. The TV stations, the 6 o'clock news, and the printed press had no qualms about demonizing gun owners and gun ownership. Last summer, the former law enforcement officer opposed an ultimately successful push to remove the Confederate flag from the statehouse grounds following the slaying of nine black parishioners at Amiel AME in Charleston. I don't see what that had to do with it. It's unconstitutional. It's just unconstitutional. Yeah. The guy, either way. The guy can't use that as an argument against the press. Oh, they're oh, fine with doing one thing, so <laughs> why are they complaining about another? Like, well, no, he's... They're complaining about both, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's going to try. Uh, yeah. You know, it seems to be a case of what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I guess it's like retaliatory legislation, which is just crazy. Also, he's about 40 years late because... <laughs> Lots of the TV and print news now relies on citizen journalism. Yeah, so, well, it, ha- yeah. it has to because that's the last, that's the last bastion of actual journalistic integrity. I think is yeah. is the citizen journalist. So yeah, yeah. 
I mean, news sites now get stories from Facebook and Twitter. So mm. what, is everyone in the world going to have to register as a journalist? Yeah, they <laughs> they go on there, they go on Facebook and look at everything that's trending and go, this is what we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so that's two stories down. I still don't know what you saw funny about the Fitbit story at all. Jeannie. Well, you know, I have kind of this really sick sense of humor. And, you <laughs> really? know, my sense of humor says <laughs> that I'm fat and lazy, therefore I don't have one of those. So, yeah, it's, it's the, you know, all, all the yuppies that <laughs> want everything taken care of for them and not have to do anything. And I really don't think that a lot of these people understand that this stuff that they think is so awesome in their life can be used against them. Well, I mean, any, to some I mean, extent. I mean, anything can be used against you, and that's why, like, I'm, I'm really kind of a, a privacy fanatic, actually. Um, and this was funny because um, I didn't put this in the show. I mean, it's in the show notes, but I, I, I didn't really intend to talk about this, but I'm going to. Um, Nielsen will now use your Facebook chatter for TV ratings. <laughs> Facebook is always watching what you post, and now the company will be sharing some of that data with the ratings gurus at Nielsen. The company announced today that it will expand its offerings to include Facebook conversations as part of what it's calling social content ratings. Nielsen has tracked conversations on Twitter for the past three years as another barometer of interest in TV shows. Now it's adding Facebook conversations to the mix and eventually plans to include Instagram as well. But the new system will only be relying from data on conversations you've elected to share publicly. Nielsen will also be using what it describes as aggregated anonymous data from private conversations as well. Everyday television fans from around the world use Facebook to talk about the shows and the stars they love with the people that matter most to them, Nick Gruden, Facebook's director of media partnership, says. Now, these conversations will be counted in determining which shows really do have our attention. Now, to tell you why I think that's funny, I posted that I was going to be watching The X-Files, which not really a big deal, right? Because, you know, I grew up watching that. I was excited it was coming back to TV. And, and so then it shows up on Facebook that it's trending, you know. And that whole thing is already being done. There's a graph in this horrible story from, I don't even know what it's from. But I'm sticking it here. There's actually a graph in this story that I stuck in the chat from Entertainment Weekly that shows the number of Facebook fan pages for the top 45 countries. So they're already doing that with the graphic thing. Well, so. the music charts are now based on virtual sales more <laughs> than they are on well, physical sales. I mean, so, they, yeah. would, they would almost have to be. So, you know, everything you do and everywhere you go, anything you say, you're kind of a commodity. Okay. So we would talk about the TTP. Let's get down to it. More realistic mod modeling of the TTP's effects predicts four, 450,000 U.S. Lo jobs lost con contraction of the economy. So apparently the fake numbers they were using before weren't dismal enough. 
Last week, we wrote about a World Bank report predicting that the TTP would produce negligible boosts to the economies of the U.S., Australia, and Canada. Of course, that's just one study, and it could be argued it might be unrepresentative or unduly pessimistic. That makes the publication of yet more economic modeling of what could happen particularly welcome. It comes from Jerome Capaldo and Alex Azuria at Tufts University and starts off by making an important point that's too often overlooked when looking at other TPP predictions. The standard model assumes full employment and invariant income distribution, ruling out the main risks of trade and financial liberalization. Subject to these assumptions, it finds positive effects on growth. An important question, therefore, is how this conclusion changes if those assumptions are dropped. Assuming that the TTP won't change employment levels in any of the participating nations seems a stretch, not least because previous trade liberalization has caused sizable job losses, as the new study notes. At the very least, it means that those using these models to argue in favor of the TTP shouldn't be making any claims about its effects on employment, since these don't exist by definition. Capaldo and Arizia are able to look at how jobs are affected because they use a different model, which they claim is superior to the one found in most studies. In this paper, we review existing projections of the TTP and propose alternative ones based on more realistic assumptions about the economic adjustment and income distribution. We start from the trade projections put forward in the main existing study and explore macroeconomic consequences using the United Nations global policy model. Most of the paper is spent taking a rather critical look at previous results and will probably be mostly of interest to economists, especially academic ones, but the final results of the new calculation are certainly worth noting. Given the small changes in net worth, the resulting changes in GDP growth are mostly projected to be negligible. We present two sets of growth figures. 10-year totals, which measure the overall effect of the TTP on growth rates compared to the baseline, and annual averages, which measure the average changes in growth rates due to the TTP. That underlines another point often missed, that the GDP's growth figures quoted by politicians and TTP supporters reflect the overall effect after 10 years. Here's what they found. The 10-year total changes in growth are projected to be below 1% by 2025 in all regions but two. In East Asia and Latin America, GDP growth is predicted to increase by 2.18% and 2.84% respectively under the TTP. By comparison, during the 2005 to 2005 GDP, the two regions estimated to have grown by 50% and 47% respectively. The U.S. and Japan are projected to suffer net losses of GDP 0.54% and 0.12% respectively compared to the baseline. Although those growth figures are worse than previous predictions, they confirm that the TTP's impact on GDP will be small. What's new in this paper is the estimation of the agreement's effect on jobs. While projected employment losses are small compared to the labor force, they clearly signal an adverse effect of liberalization not taken into account with full employment models. In TTP countries, the largest effect will occur in the U.S. with approximately 450,000 jobs lost by 2025. Japan and Canada follow with approximately 75,000 and 58,000 jobs lost respectively. Largest loss, the smallest loss, I'm sorry, Approximately 5,000 jobs is occurred to is projected to occur in New, New Zealand, where the increase in ex- exports is projected to be the largest. Overall, projected job losses in the TTP countries amount to 771,000 jobs. Also novel is the report's comments about the global effect of TTP. When analyzed with a model that recognizes the risk of trade liberalization, the TTP appears to only marginally change competitiveness among participating countries. 
Most gains are therefore obtained at the expense of non-TTP countries. Globally, the TTP favors competition on labor costs and remuneration of capital. Depending on the policy choices in non-TTP countries, this may accelerate the global race to the bottom, increasing downward pressure on labor incomes in a quest for more elusive trade gains. Although this is just one more study, it does confirm the more gloomy predictions for the TTP. It It inevitably poses a question with yet more force. Why exactly are politicians in TTP nations pushing so hard to ratify a controversial agreement that seems to have few quantifiable benefits and very considerable costs? They're pushing it because their friends in big business are going to make a lot of money off it. Yes, they are. Unfortunately. So, you know, as long as it's not about them, they're good with it. So we're going to talk about Code 451. Censorship transparency comes to the web. This comes from the Global Internet Policy Internet Architecture site. Understanding the scale of censorship taking place on the Internet is a persistent challenge for Internet rights and civil liberties groups. The global nature of Internet means that Internet and content service providers are routinely subject to requests by legal authorities to block access to certain content. Unfortunately, there has been no easy way for a service provider to comply with a blocking order while also notifying users that censorship has taken place. As a result, users are often left unable to determine precisely why content is inaccessible, with many mistaking censorship for merely a technical issue. Consequently, users will be less likely to pursue legal recourse or otherwise try to hold their governments accountable for their censorship activity. Last month, the IETF approved a new HTTP status code that could help solve this problem. The code, which gives websites and other ISPs a standardized way to notify users that content cannot be served due to a legal order, is an enormous step forward for understanding the scale of censorship on the web. By offering providers a way to distinguish between technical errors, e.g. 403, and legal blockages, code 451, the IETF has baked transparency into the web and opened a new means of monitoring censorship. If the new code is quickly taken up, it will not be long before we see automated censorship tracking tools which take advantage of it. Despite its benefits, giving the web a status code for censorship was not without controversy. One of the principal concerns was that censorous governments would simply prohibit its use. However, this may present more of an opportunity than a threat. If a government attempted to prevent the use of 451, such an action would be easily recognizable and might even come to be viewed as evidence of the kind of systematic right violations that trigger a country's international obligations. The change could also have a profound effect on the transparency of blocking orders. In some jurisdictions, such as the UK, it can be difficult, time-consuming, and expensive to access copies of court orders, which makes it a challenge to understand the true scale of censorship taking place. A flood of requests from service providers seeking to link court orders in their 451 responses might shake up centuries-old administrative systems and make publication the default. For users, the greater transparency will ultimately mean greater control over our online lives. Instead of seeing content disappearing from the web, we will now know when sites have been forced to censor content and will be able to decide what to do about it. This is a great step forward for the internet and for government accountability online. And if governments block the use of the 451 code, they can produce another code telling you they've blocked the blocking code. (laughs) Governments just don't get it. They can't censor things however they want anymore. Well, 
the internet has sure made it harder for them to hide. That's the one thing I can say about it. I mean, I might have no privacy, but they fucking have none. And that's not a bad thing. Okay. Um, I, I spent a long time not talking about Benghazi or Libya for various reasons. One of the biggest ones is I'm kind of apolitical on it. But, um, yeah. So tonight... I'm going to talk about Libya, <laughs> the true motive for Libyan intervention. The only disclosed email showed that Libya's plan to create a gold-backed currency to complete with euro and dollar was a motive for NATO's intervention. The New Year's Eve release of over 3,000 new Hillary Clinton emails from the State Department has CNN abuzz over gossipy text messages, the who gets dried with Hillary's selection process set up by her staff, and how a cute Hillary photo fared on Facebook. But historians of the 2011 NATO war in Libya will be sure to notice a few of the truly explosive confirmations contained in the new emails. Hang on. Let me stick that link here in the chat for you. Admissions of rebel war crimes, special op trainers inside Libya from nearly the start of protests, Al-Qaeda embedded in U.S.-backed opposition, Western nations jockeying for access to Libyan oil, the nefarious origins of the absurd Viagra mass rape claim, and concern over Gaddafi's gold and silver reserves threatening European currency. I didn't write this. On March 27, 2011, intelligence brief on Libya sent by longtime close advisor to the Clintons and Hillary's unofficial intelligence gatherer, Sidney Blumenthal contains clear evidence of war crimes on the part of NATO-backed rebels. Citing a rebel commander source, speaking in strict confidence, Blumenthal reports to Hillary, under attack from Allied and naval forces, the Libyan troops have begun to desert to the rebel side in increasing numbers. The rebels are making an effort to greet these troops as fellow Libyans in an effort to encourage additional defections. (sighs) While the legality of extrajudicial killings is easy to recognize groups engaged in such are controversially termed death squads. The sinister reality behind the foreign mercenaries reference might not be immediately evident to most. While over the decades, Gaddafi was known to make use of European and other international security and infrastructure contractors, there is no evidence to suggest that they were targeted by Libyan rebels. There is now, however, ample documentation by journalists, academics, and human rights groups demonstrating that black Libyan civilians and sub-Saharan contract workers, a population favored by Gaddafi in his pro-African Union policies, were targets of racial cleansing by rebels who saw black Libyans as tied closely with the regime. Black Libyans were commonly branded as foreign mercenaries by the rebel opposition for their perceived loyalty to Gaddafi as a community and subjected to torture, executions, and their towns liberated by ethnic cleansing. This is demonstrated in the most well-documented example of... Uh, Mary, can you pronounce the name of that town for me? Tawerga, I think. Tawerga, an entire town of 30,000 black and dark-skinned Libyans which vanished by August 2011 after its takeover by NATO-backed NTC Mistran Brigades. These attacks were well-known as late as 2012 and were often filmed, as the report from The Telegraph confirms. 
after Muammar Gaddafi was killed, hundreds of migrant workers from neighboring states were imprisoned by fighters allied to new interim authorities. They accused the black Africans of having been mercenaries for the late ruler. Thousands of sub-Saharan Africans have been rounded up since Gaddafi fell in August. It appears that Clinton was getting personally briefed on the battlefield crimes of her beloved anti-Gaddafi fighters long before some of the worst of these genocidal crimes took place. That same intelligence email from Sidney Blumenthal also confirms what had become a well-known theme of Western-supported insurgencies in the Middle East, the contraindication of special forces training militias that are simultaneously suspected of links to al-Qaeda. Blumenthal relates that an extremely sensitive source confirmed that British, French, and Egyptian special operations units were training Libyan militants along the Egypt-Libyan border as well as in Benghazi suburbs. While analysts have long speculated as to the when and where of the Western ground troop presence in the Libyan war, this email serves as definite proof that special forces were on the ground within a month. The earliest protest was broke out in the middle to end of February 2011 in Benghazi. By March 27, much of what was commonly assumed as a simple popular uprising of external special operatives were already overseeing the transfer of weapons and supplies to the rebels, including a seemingly endless supplies of AK-47 assault rifles, rifles and ammunition. Yet only a few paragraphs after the submission, caution is voiced about the very militias these Western forces were training because of concern that radical terrorist groups such as the Libyan Fighting Group and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghrib are infiltrating the NLC and its military command. The threat of Libya's oil and gold to French interests. <sighs> <clears throat> Through the French-proposed UN Security Council Resolution 1973, claimed no-flyover zone implemented over Libya was protected to protect civilians, an April 2011 email sent to Hillary with the subject line, France's client and Gaddafi's gold tells of less noble ambitions. This email identifies French President Nicolas Sarkozy as leading the attack on Libya with five specific purposes in mind, to obtain Libyan oil, to ensure French influence in the region, to increase Sardowski's reputation domestically, assert French military power, and to prevent Gaddafi's influence in what is considered Francophone Africa. Most astounding is the lengthy section delineating the huge threat that Gaddafi's gold and silver reserves, estimated at 143 tons of gold and a similar amount of silver, post to the French franc circulating as a prime African currency. In place of the noble-sounding responsibility to protect doctrine fed to the public, there is this confidential explanation of what was really driving the war. The gold was accumulated prior to the current rebellion and was intended to be used to establish a pan-African currency based on the Libyan gold dinar. The plan was designed to provide the francophone African countries with an alternative to the French franc. According to knowledgeable individuals, this quantity of gold and silver is valued at more than $7 billion. French intelligence officers discovered this plan shortly after the current rebellion began, and this was one of the factors that influenced President Nicolas Sarkozy's decision to commit France to the attack on Libya. Though this eternal email, internal email seems, aims to summarize the motivating factor driving France's, and by implication NATO's, intervention in Libya, it is interesting to note that saving civilian lives is conspicuously absent from the briefing. 
Instead, the great fear reported is that Libya might need lead North Africa to a high degree of economic independence with the new pan-African currency. French intelligence discovered a Libyan initiative to freely compete with European currency through a local alternative, and this had to be subverted through military intervention. The ease of floating crude propaganda. Early in the Libyan conflict, Secretary of State Clinton formally accused Gaddafi and his army of using mass rape as a tool of war. Through numerous international organizations like Amnesty International quickly debunked these claims, the charges were uncritically echoed by Western politicians and major media. It seemed no matter how bizarre the conspiracy theory, as long as it painted Gaddafi and his supporters as monsters, and so long as it served the causes of prolonged military action in Libya, it was deemed credible by the network news. Two foremost examples are referenced in the latest batch of emails. The sensational claim that Gaddafi issued Viagra to his troops for mass rape, and the claim that the bodies were staged by the Libyan government at NATO bombing sites to give the appearance of Western coalition bombing activities. In a late March 2011 email, Blumenthal confesses to Hillary that, uh, communicated more than a week ago on this story, Gaddafi placing bodies to create PR stunts about a supposed civilian casualties as a result of Allied bombing, though underlining it was a rumor. By now, as you know, Robert gives it credence to it. See story below. Sources say now, again, rumor, that is, this information comes from the rebel site and is unconfirmed independently by Western intelligence, that Gaddafi has adopted a rape policy and has even distributed Viagra to his troops. The incident at Tripoli press conference involving a woman claiming to be raped is likely to be part of a much larger outrage. We'll seek further confirmation. Not only did Defense Secretary Robert Gates promote his bizarre stage bodies theories on CBS News's Face the Nation, but an even stranger Viagra rape fiction made international headlines as U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice made formal charges against Libya in front of the U.N. Security Council. What this new email confirms is that not only was the State Department aware of the spurious nature of what Blumenthal calls rumors originating solely with the rebels, but did nothing to stop false information from rising to top officials who then gave them credence. It appears, furthermore, that the Viagra mass rape hoax was likely originated with Sidney Blumenthal himself. Not really a shock, right? No, not so much. I don't think anybody's shocked by that. Nope. Politicians okay. make shit, shit up just to suit themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I I have no idea. Is it like 6.34 and I've blown through everything I said I was going to talk about tonight? <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is. So, yeah, we, we crammed all the news into the first half hour. Lump it or leave it, I guess. <laughs> this is called so, the speed version of Anti-Nanny, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Um, oh, did I? I read the thing about war powers. Did I? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, that's the only one I think that's left. I just need to find it. Forty-five pages of show notes. You would think this stuff would be easy to find. <laughs> it's really, <laughs> for some reason, it's just not you know floating right to the top because there's actually so much news. Once, once we're done tonight, I'll start working on the next one, and sometimes I'll even have two weeks worth of news going at the same time. So 
where I think stuff is, it might not always be. Um, but this, I know I stuck in here because it just blows my mind that it's not being talked about. Although the reason it's not being talked about likely is because no one really fucking seemed to know about it. Um, Senate leaders surprises lawmakers with new ISIS war powers request. Um, neither Republicans nor Democrats knew that Senator Majority Leader planned to set up a debate on authorizing the use of force against the Islamic State. <sighs> After months of worrying that such a resolution, known as an authorization for use of military force, would tie the next president's hands, Mitch McConnell's move to fast-track the measure surprised even his top de- deputy, Senator Majority Whip John Cornyn, who was unaware that McConnell had set up the authorization. He did, Cornyn asked National Journal on Thursday morning. The AUMF put forward by McConnell would not restrict the president's use of ground troops, nor have any limits related to time or geography, nor would it touch on the issue of what to do with the 2001 AUMF, which the Obama administration has used to attack ISIS, despite that authorization's instructions to use force against those who planned a 9-11 terrorist attack. By contrast, the legal authority put forward by the administration last February wouldn't authorize enduring offensive ground combat operations and wouldn't have ended three years after enactment unless reauthorized. After sitting on the president's proposed AUMF for nearly a year, amid deep infighting in the Senate over the measure, McConnell's move came as a surprise to many members. Just in December, McConnell dismissed the idea of bringing up the new authorization, telling reporters, it's clear the president does not have a strategy in place, so it would be hard to figure out how to authorize a non-strategy. Don Stewart, McConnell's spokesman, said Thursday in an email that the new AUMF is not the one the president asked for and not the one that would tie the president's hands. After 18 months, I feel like the institution might be finally waking up that this is a threat. Senator Tim Kaine said, Stewart added that the process McConnell used to set up the AUMF, known as Rule XIV, merely sets up an authorization for a future vote, but does not put it on the calendar, meaning that a vote could come at any time or not at all. The resolution already has four Republican co-sponsors, Senator Lindsey Graham, there's a shock, Daniel Coates, Joni Ernst, and Orrin Hatch. Shocks all around that they would authorize this. This came as news to many members Thursday. Several senators said they were unaware that McConnell had moved to fast track an authorization, and some Republicans immediately pointed out issues with the proposal. Senator Jeff Flake, who introduced a more limited AUMF with Virginia Democrat Tim Kaine last June, said, We need to pass one. We don't just need to make a political statement. I know that it'll be difficult to get Democratic support on this, he added. Senate Foreign Relations Chairman Bob Corker said that there is still a wide diversity of opinions on the issue. Some Democrats were critical of even the president's own draft AUMF, warning that they'd need to see additional restrictions from the administration on troop levels and geographic boundaries before they could support any authorization. Republicans, meanwhile, worried deeply about restricting the president as this administration and the next one work to combat ISIS. 
Corker's committee and the Senate at large was so deeply divided over the president's AUMF proposal in February that the panel ultimately dropped the issue, with Corker arguing with the administration that no new authorization was needed. I don't think it changes anything, he said of the new resolution. I'm in the same place that I've been, and that is, I believe the administration has the authority to do what they're doing, he added. They still believe they have the authority to do what they're doing. If a consensus develops, and I believe that something constructive relative to us dealing with ISIS might come out of it, then certainly I'd be glad to consider it. Still several longtime advocates for passing a new measure authorizing the administration's war against ISIS were pleased to see an AUMF moving, however, slightly forward. I'm encouraged by the fact that McConnell's not running away from this issue any longer. This is the right thing, said Graham, a co-sponsor on the AUMF resolution. This is the right infrastructure to have. If our Democratic friends don't want to give this president and other presidents the ability to go after ISIS without limitation to geography, time, and means, be on the record, he added. Kane, a Democrat who has aggressively advocated for an AUMF, was thrilled Thursday that the Senate could soon take up the debate, though he added he hasn't yet seen the details. After 18 months, I feel like this institution may finally be waking up to the fact that this is a threat. So we'll see this plan is on it. But the notion that we may finally be taking our job seriously on it is something I'm hopeful about. Kane said although he and the vast majority of Congress support combating ISIS, he disagrees with the administration that the president is within his authority to do so. I believe the war is illegal, Kane said Thursday. I don't think there's a legal justification for it. And I think the greatest danger we end up doing is allowing the president to wage a war without Congress weighing in. Kane added that the president acted initially to protect American lives and credited the White House for sending an AUMF over last year. We haven't done anything. So just the notion may finally be that there's some interest in this. I find it gratifying, but we still have to work through the details. Several Democrats said they were unaware of or hadn't read the new AUMF language, but some greeted the opportunity to open debate on the issue. I haven't read it, but I'm encouraged by the fact that he's not running away from it anymore. The president has asked for this for a long time. Senator Robert Menendez, who helped get a Democratic draft AUMF through Foreign Relations Committee as chairman in December 2014, said the new authorization was news to him, but he supported bringing up the issue. I'm for Congress voting on an AUMF. Of course, it depends on what it looks like. I don't want a blank check, he said. Cornyn, who in December said that Republicans would not present an AUMF of their own until the president outlined a strategy, said that he nonetheless welcomed debate on the issue. I don't think we should be afraid of debate, but we need a coherent strategy from the president, which we still don't have, and we don't need to tie the hands of the next president by restricting what the president can do, Cornyn said. What I find kind of ironic about this president is that he apparently thinks he has all the authority he needs to do what he's doing, he added. But I'm not afraid of debate. I think it's an important debate to have. And certainly people we send in harm's way need to know that the country is behind them. So thanks for telling me. You from Acme. Insta war. <laughs> is it me? I mean, am I the only one who with. It, it doesn't take geography or time into account and it yeah. authorizes any other president to do the same. Am yeah, I crazy? I Instant war. Well, we've heard. Um, Daesh have representatives in country X. We'll just go bomb the shit out of it. I mean, is it me? Here's Be the thing. Authorized. Yeah. Here's the thing. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Um, 
and this this isn't even my analogy. This is somebody else's analogy. But do you remember in Star Wars where they took and they freeze Han Solo in carbonite? And the reason they freeze him in carbonite is he's a test. Yeah. All this shit that they're doing to other people in other countries, in other towns, in other states with less money. It's just a test before they do it to us. It's just a matter of time. It's the same sort of thing. You know, when there's no relation to geography, they can drone you in your fucking house. Maybe I'm just crazy. I don't. Can, it, can I don't they start it. with UCSF? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Can can we can we do we know any nice folks at Anonymous who could create some backlinks to Daesh through some of their email accounts? <laughs> but I'm, I, I can't be the only one that finds this disturbing that this just got bought to the floor and nobody's talking about it. Nobody knows about it. The problem is if you give the president, any president, the ability to wage eternal war, what do you think they're going to do? Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, this proposal I mean, would mean any president can use Daesh as an excuse yep. to bomb anyone he damn well likes. So, or doesn't, he doesn't like. have to ask Congress for authorization. Yeah, <laughs> and it and he's not constrained by geography or time. That's what should scare you, folks. It scares me. I mean, I'm not saying it will happen, but you know, even if this president's the greatest person on planet Earth, what happens if the next one is Donald fucking Trump? What happens then if he doesn't like somebody mouthing off about him? Oh, I heard he has uh, links to Daesh, so let's just drone bomb that asshole. Yeah. Really? Well, yeah, Do you Trump, want Trump, any president be, to have that kind of power? Trump, it definitely would be. Well, that guy over there talked to an Arab. Yeah. <laughs> so am I the only one that found that disturbing at all? They're just handing the keys over to whoever's sitting in the White House and saying, you decide. That's not right. The reason we have three branches of government is to create gridlock when one goes running willy-nilly tilting at windmills. You have some way to fucking stop them. We don't have that anymore. And obviously, if Congress is just willing to hand this to this fucker, then Congress is useless and should be disbanded as well because they're not doing their damn jobs. Sorry. I'm sorry. Jeannie, any thoughts? You pretty much said them all. And no, Jan, you're not crazy, by the way. <laughs> that, that's all I have to add to that is no, you're not crazy. Okay. All right. So now you know the news that nobody's talking about. Hooray. <sighs> <laughs> so it's it's been a fun day. Yeah. Um. Okay, um, something kind of fun. It's not really fun, but it cracks me up. FBI director says scientists are wrong, pitches imaginary solution to encryption dilemma. Testifying before two Senate committees on Wednesday about the threat, he says strong encryption presents to law enforcement. FDI, FBI director James Comrie didn't so much propose a solution as wish for one. Comrie says he needs some way to read and listen to any communication for which he's gotten a court order. Modern end-to-end -end encryption increasingly common following the revelations of mass surveillance by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden doesn't allow for that. 
Only the parties on either end can do the decoding. Cormery's problem is the nearly universal agreement among cryptographers, technologists, and security experts that there is no way to give the government access to the encrypted communications without poking an exploitable hole that would put confidential data as well as entities like banks and power grids at risk. But while speaking at Senate Judiciary and Senate Intelligence Committee hearings on Wednesday, Cormery repeatedly refused to accept that as reality. A whole lot of good people have said it's too hard. Maybe that's so, he said to the Intelligence Committee. But my reaction to that is, I'm not sure they really tried. In a comment worthy of climate denialists, Cormery told one senator, maybe the scientists are right. Eh, I'm not willing to give up on that yet. He described his inability to make a realistic proposal as the act of a humble public servant. We're trying to show humility to say we don't know what should be best, Cormery said. Uh, American technologists are so brilliant, they could surely come up with a solution if properly incentivized. Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, was incredulous about Cormery's insistence that experts are wrong. How does his head not explode from cognitive dissonance when he repeats he has no tech expertise and then insists everyone who does his wrong, he tweeted during the hearing. Prior to the committee hearings, a group of the world's foremost cryptographers and scientists wrote a paper, including complex technical analysts, concluding that mandated backdoor keys for the government would only be dangerous for national security. This is the first time a group has gotten back together since 1997, the previous instance in which the FBI asked for a technical backdoor into communications. But no experts were invited to testify, a fact that several Intelligence Committee members bought up, demanding a second hearing to hear from them. Cormery got little pushback from the panel, despite his lack of any formal plan and his denial of science. Senator Martin Heinrich, a Democrat of New Mexico, thanked him for his display of humility and not presenting a solution, while Committee Chairman Richard Burr, Republican of North Carolina, says, I think you deserve a lot of credit for your restraint. Cormery at one point briefly considered the possibility of a world not like the one he imagined, then concluded, if that's the case, then I think we're stuck. Really, if they want his head to really explode, they should really (laughs) explain to him the top guys in cryptography are in Russia and the Far (laughs) East. I mean, is it me? Okay. In 1964, two journalists wrote a book where they proposed that your government was split in ways you couldn't say. Okay, they they suggested that you had a a shadow government like the NSA spying apparatus, the military industrial complex, and then you had the government you could see, right? Which was you know uh, everything you do say, and they dug up which I thought was kind of funny, uh, a bunch of paperwork that basically said that the CIA really wasn't a government agency, that it was a civilian spying agency, which I think is kind of hysterical because it's on government payroll. But I guess that designation mandates them to do a lot of things that they can do you know, in other countries, allegedly in other countries that they don't allegedly do here on our soil. <laughs> And the reason they wrote that book is they they said they wanted to wake people up and and to warn them about what was coming if people didn't, like, wise up in mass. And I kind of wonder what would happen if you took these dead journalists and bought them to now and let them look at the world around them. 
would they think we woke up and did something? Pretty much yeah. thinking no. 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 Exactly. N- not when you have a guy in the FBI who, yeah. At Christmas, was he sitting in a mall somewhere on Santa's knee going, can I have backdoor encryption, <laughs> please? Uh, <laughs> kind of. That, that kind of seems was... to be the level he's at. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> he's not very smart. But what I was going to say is is the worst part of that, that the the invisible branch of government is apparently they're not really freaking intelligent. No. It scared. is worrying that he's in charge of the FBI. And he's that <laughs> clueless. I mean, no wonder they can't get anything done. <laughs> kind of. It, it's pretty it's pretty terrible stuff. I'm uh I'm glad I'm not a government employee. I really am. I mean, it it, it used to be that that was the jobs everybody wanted cuz oh, they had a pension. You know, they were set for life. I'm glad I don't work for these people because I don't think I could stand the derp on a daily basis. I think I would be screaming at the end of the day every single day at just the ignorance that goes on. Makes me very sad. Um, And since that ended on such a high note, it's uh, <laughs> we've got like eight minutes till Alex. So let me see if I can find... Something short in here, which I might not be able to, because we already talked about Libya, and that was so fun. Um, this one about your threat score, not really a short little fun story. Maybe I'll save that for later. Um, but I think you can definitely say that all the stories kind of share one thing in common. Um, it's stuff most people aren't talking about. And they're yeah. not talking about it because the press is really busy talking about which Kardashian got an, you know, an ass implant or something. I, I don't know. I don't even know what they talk about on mainstream news anymore. Because um, it's just pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And I kind of wish people were exposed to more news from good sources. But I think it's hard to find that these days um um oh here's one bigger than safe harbor microsoft president vows to take down u.s government and data protection lawsuit all your stuff is readable by uncle sam worldwide europeans should sit up and take more notice of microsoft's lawsuit against the u.s government over secret access to their data why because it affects much more of their data than the safe harbor case according to microsoft president and lead counsel brad smith the Department of Justice does not wait need to wait for data to come to the United States to examine it, he explained. It can force countries to give it your data without disclosing that access to government or complying with any European law. Smith said 90% of Europeans' data is affected by the Irish warrant case, far more data than is affected by the transatlantic flows governed by safe harbor rules, which Australian Mac Shreams explored in a European court ruling last year. Microsoft has sued the U.S. government challenging its right to access European data in the Dublin Data Center. The government can do so because it recognizes no territorial limits to U.S. power in its laws. Everywhere in the world is the United States. Smith called it the defining policy issue for 2016. 82% of Facebook global 
user base is served by Dublin. The case is being heard by an intermediate tier of the appeals court in the U.S., and Microsoft expects it to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Smith cited amicus briefs filed by media and technology companies, trade associations, NGOs, and computer scientists. It has potentially cataclysmic consequences for the operation of the U.S. government, particularly in respect to tax revenues. Microsoft's chief lawyer thought a safe harbor replacement would be reached eventually, yet because it's too important to fail, it may not succeed succeed in the current round of negotiations, which are set to end by January 31st. But he said it wouldn't happen with just wishful thinking. The U.S., having promised to end bulk data collection on its citizens, needed to do a lot more. Smith didn't sell his trusty model as a cure-all, though. Designed to rebuild trust in American companies post-streams, the trusty model sees data ownership and management handed to a European company. In the first instances, a subsidiary of Deutsche Technikon. Microsoft employees would have no access to the data at all and would therefore comply with European law. More than 30 companies have filed in support of Microsoft against Uncle Sam, but Google isn't one of them. Yeah, Google, as always, is the kid that doesn't like playing with anybody else. No, no, they're really happy with all their all their toys and and all their data and you know everything. Google is. Um, has anybody seen that? Um, and I don't know if anybody did, but it came out in January. It was a data visualization of all the things that Google has its hands in. And Google's now called Alphabet, by the way. Yes. And I mean, they are involved with like everything, literally everything from securing your data to stealing your data to, um, you know, creating drones that um, work with artificial intelligence with no human involved at all. They're, They're, they uh they own part of Boston Dynamics with their horrible mechanized war dogs that are too loud to take into the field. Um, they own a large portion of everything. Life extension companies. Um, it's just kind of icky when you see it all spread out. What they've got their fingers into everywhere. It's kind of disgusting. They've, they've kind of become the Nestle of technology. <laughs> Because kind of. Nestle is kind of the same on consumer products, shall we say. <laughs> food food yeah. and medicines and yeah. the like. So, yeah. yeah. Google's heading the same way in the technology market. Yeah, they are. Um, it's kind of gross, actually. It's, it's amazing that there's that much wealth um, in Google. You know, um, which kind of proves my point. Data is the new money. Your information is kind of like the new money. It's almost more valuable than what you can bring to the workforce as a human being, which is scary. Because that really goes against all conventional rules um, that economists follow. You know, this should not be happening, but it is. So very strange time to be alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, when the money guy starts telling you that you know he's investing in water, um, that should tell you that everything's pretty fucking disturbing, Jan. Yeah. Well, 
just because I look at it and find it disturbing doesn't mean that other people look at the news and see the same pattern. <laughs> but I'm glad you did. I'm glad you got it. That was that was pretty horrific, I thought, last week. Just all the water stories. And what's come down since then is there's a bunch more states that are telling their people to illegally flush their taps before they do the lead testing and stuff. So there's a whole bunch more states that could be affected by this sort of lead contamination than we think. And, you know, and the thing about that, they switched out the lead pipes in Podunk, where I live, decades ago. Yeah, well, you know, you you can never... Never assign to stupidity what you can assign to government neglect and greed. Yeah, I mean, that's what all this is. The UK um, spent an awful lot of money in the 70s getting rid of lead pipes everywhere. Well, that was here. It was in the 70s here, too, very. It's it's now incredibly rare in the UK to come across a lead pipe anywhere, unless it's uh, in some criminal's hand and he's hitting you with it. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why they didn't do it, but I mean, if you look at the places where it's coming up, they're traditionally not well off places. So um, I'm not going to make the argument that the poor are easier to ignore, but they might be. Well, it I don't might know just how they be do that. It. I don't know how they do it in the States, but in the UK. Um, they changed the building regulations so that any new building or any building that was getting a major refit mm-hmm. had to replace the lead piping. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. <sighs> well, it's a little after seven. want to see if we can get Alex for the Gasa update? Yep. And, and coming next, a less depressing Gasa update. hey alex good evening alex good evening good evening and welcome to the casa update for the week of 125 2016 so what's new and exciting this week alex (laughs) (laughs) excuse me okay um Let's see where to start. Um, I think we try to. I'm looking at my timeline here on Florida, um, just as a, a follow. We've updated the blogs, and I, I yes, I sort of assume that most people in Florida um, are paying attention to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, House Bill 1143 sailed as predicted through the first committee hearing. Um, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's that, that was, nobody should be surprised by that. That was pretty much what everybody expected to happen. There are two more committee hearings after this. Um, and as I understand it, um, some of the, uh, the the Florida advocates, uh, Kevin Skipper and FSFA, I believe are going to be working on offering their own amendments to the bill. Um, so we'll be following that and, uh, and see where that goes. Uh, and then on Tuesday, uh, New Jersey governor, Chris Christie 
uh, vetoed a pair of bills that would have raised the age for purchasing all tobacco products and electronic cigarettes to 21. Um, the age that to was purchase, a surprise. That was a surprise. That was a big surprise that he vetoed it. Really. It was a little bit, but um, I, I did see, I think, an NBC um, or MSNBC, somebody put out a, uh, a story about how much tobacco lobbying money he had accepted or something in, in 2014. I can't remember exactly the details on it. Um, right. But uh, Christie is also, you know, he had proposed in, in his budget in 2013. Um, the uh, uh, e-cigarette tax, yeah, and uh, eventually that got left out of the budget. I, I think mm-hmm. you know, part of that had to do with some of the testimony that they received. I think in the finance committee hearings and the budget committee hearings, and also I think he realized that it was sort of poorly thought out. Yeah. Um, so uh, it wouldn't necessarily put Christie in the uh, friend of the vapors category. <laughs> um, he also mm-hmm. sort of blamed the legislature for sending him tons and tons of bills at the last, you know, at the end of the year for him to sign. And right. um, I think he just looked at that and said, this is outrageous. And I think he, I, I don't know if rubber stamp veto is, is a term, but I think he just <laughs> vetoed a lot of things because he was fed up. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, good news, I think for, for, uh, young adults in New Jersey who have switched to vapor products. And, uh, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, since that actually, it might've been before, I'm not going to waste time to look it up, but there is another bill. Uh, that was introduced for this session that will would raise the age. Um, so uh, I'm trying to, I was I, there was an email about it. So tobacco twenty one is just the new dance craze. Absolutely. Um, I just saw an alert about it. I think it's SB three fifty nine. Let's see. And, you know, the, the nice thing is, is he's not just going to be upsetting vapors. He's going to be upsetting people that switch to snooze or smokeless products or any of that. I don't think upsetting is quite the word. I think um, putting them, putting their lives at risk is probably a better. Well, structure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, he's also infantilizing people, people that can you know, make adult decisions in every other way are not allowed to be exposed to tobacco, which is just kind of ridiculous in any form. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, uh, Senate bill three fifty nine. Uh, this has been introduced by Senator Richard Cody. Uh, this was actually introduced, uh, well referred to the Senate health human services and senior citizens committee on <laughs> January 12th. Uh, there was a hearing scheduled today, but we have feet of snow on the ground, and I'm pretty sure that most lawmakers are shoveling their driveways or perhaps their <laughs> entire neighborhood um, Probably. today. So, yeah, there's a lot of places that are not accessible in the Northeast Corridor right now. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, governments all over the I-95 corridor are shut down today. Um hmm. In fact, for the entire day, the, the, the 
the city where I live, the heavy equipment was out uh, loading the snow up onto dump trucks to take it away. I live across the street from a, a middle school, so our wow. neighborhood tends to get priority. That's um, kind of nice. Yeah, but enough about my snow story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, Tobacco 21 is the new dance craze. I'm seeing these bills pop up all over the place. And, um, you know, we're still, I think, trying to feel out Kasa. We're still trying to kind of feel out how to approach this stuff. I mean, obviously, we're talking about, um, you know, my my perspective on this is obviously we're talking about adults who uh, are, are going into this as smokers. And uh, this is essentially taking away low risk, smoke free alternatives from them. And, uh, you know, even after they jack up the age, cigarettes are still going to be the easiest things for them to get their hands on. Um, and you know, if you're between the ages of 18 and 21, um, there's really nothing, you know, there's, there's no, law that says you can't smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's not like raising the alcohol age to 21 where, you know, if you're caught drinking under the age of 21, there are penalties. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's a half measure. Um, it's, it's, it's a half measure and it's not likely to produce the the results that they would like to claim. Now, as long as vaping is is still out there, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, vapor stores are are prolific, and um, all the, the wonderful products are on the shelves, we're, we'll still see uh, a decline in smoking rates, likely due to people switching to to vapor products. Right. Um, and so, uh, in the wake of these policies, all the anti-smoking people can claim victory because smoking rates will continue to decline. Mm-hmm. Probably, or I mean, uh, fingers crossed. You know, right? Uh, Hawaii, I think, will be a good um, test for this, uh, and certainly, I, I you know, I don't know how how far down the the data goes on on specific municipalities um, from year to year with smoking rates, but okay. um, you know, we all we already have. Um, I can't remember if it was a study or, you know, how good the study was, but there was something that came out late last year um, regarding, you know, strict enforcement of no sales to minors actually increases smokes. Strict enforcement of no sales to minors for electronic cigarettes actually contributes to a rise in smoking rates amongst that age group. So Mm -hmm. um, I would be curious to see if similar data doesn't emerge with all this tobacco 21 nonsense. Um, so yeah. So yeah, several States have this. I'm not going to list everybody. I don't have everything in a list in front of me, but just be aware that if you live in a state, uh, that begins with a letter and is in the United (laughs) States, there's a strong possibility that tobacco 21 laws are coming to your neighborhood. Um, especially if you live in Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah, uh, I know Washington State is is looking at a Tobacco Twenty One bill. 
Uh, and I think there's a couple of other things going on in Washington state. Um, I'm not entirely clear with what's going on there. I just know that there's some action. Um, but a little further north, Alaska is looking at some exciting bills. Um, I think one of them might, let me just double check here. Um, I have the wrong things open. Well, we'll start with Alaska. Okay. So Alaska has, I, I don't think it has a companion bill yet. Um, but, uh, oops, that's the wrong place to go. Um, Alaska is looking at, let's just look at Alaska. Um, sorry, I'm getting familiar with this new tracking software. Right. So just bear with me while I no, click through deal. the steps here. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually probably quicker than the spreadsheet I had last year. Um, <laughs> So uh, as far as I can tell, there is one bill in Alaska regarding taxes. Um, okay. the, by the way, uh, the Indoor Clean Air Act bills, I believe that was SB1 and AB40 or HB40. I forget which one's in the Senate, which one's in the House. Um, but uh, those have carried over and I think are still, you know, active right. um, for what it's worth. They didn't move a whole lot last year. So who knows what that'll end up being. But the thing to look out for in Alaska, and again, the tax threats are super important and, and absolutely a threat everywhere because states are scrambling to get money. Right. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't exactly know the budget woes of Alaska, but um, everybody needs money. So... Um, Alaska is looking at a 100% wholesale tax. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, that is SB 133. You, you just and said 100%, right? Yes. I did. I did say 100% wholesale tax. Yeah. 100% of whatever the wholesale price is would be your tax for your device or your liquids. Um, I have to just look at this again. Okay. Um, if this... Yeah, uh, I yeah. do know. It's yeah. electronic smoking devices. So uh, this would be, you know, I don't know what the wholesale price is of a high-end mod, but just, right. you know, double that. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, when you're, they did stop their, you know, how the people who live there got an oil payment from the oil companies for living in Alaska. They stopped that and they're talking about instituting for the first time a state tax. A state um, income tax, not a sales tax. Okay. So I think their woes are pretty big. Yeah. Well, and how can Alaska be broke? That's what I don't get. Uh, have you looked at gas prices lately? That's how Alaska can be broke. <sighs> Alaska can be broke because of the Middle East. And they're not stopping pumping. But I digress. Yeah. Alaska. No, actually, in that vein, uh, actually, you know, a topic of discussion around our house is how Canada's doing, and uh, the Canadian dollar, I believe, is down to fifty-five cents on the American yeah. dollar, yeah. Uh, and that's because the, the previous prime minister Stephen Harper uh, basically based the economy around the oil, the oil, the tar sands, uh, and the oil production in Canada. So, um, so yeah, everybody who's heavily invested in that, I think, is hurting pretty hard. Yeah. Um, so, um, anyway, 
that's Alaska, um, and uh, don't have a hearing date on this yet, but uh, people can look forward to a call to action on that, I'm sure, at some point, okay. um, possibly soon. The other thing that I promised to get back to everyone on was um, this is a carryover year for a lot of states. Right. So we have a lot of states that have shorter sessions, the lightning round kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this moves on to New Mexico. New Mexico has a 30-day legislative session this year, wow. um, which means things might move rather quickly. Um, but we have two tax bills in New Mexico. Um, one is absolutely outrageous, and I don't see that going very far. Um, that would be SB4. Uh, this is uh, $0.04 cents per milligram of nicotine. Not milligram per milliliter, per milligram in the bottle. So I did That's... some quick math on a bottle of, of e-liquid that I might buy, which would be 30, millig- 30 milliliters of 24 milligram. Right. That would jack up the cost by over $28 just <laughs> on the tax. Um <laughs> You know, for some brands, that is more than double the cost of the retail cost of of the the bottle. Right. In addition to that, there's a labeling requirement in that bill that would require um, listing the the total content of nicotine in the bottle. Which, again, this sort of falls in that, like, kind of ridiculous requirements. I'm sure somebody thinks that that's significant and... Um, I, I also, it's kind of one of those required to scare people things, um, but it really doesn't present any useful information to the consumer. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, nobody really, I mean, I guess if you're contemplating consuming 700 some odd milligrams of nicotine, (laughs) you, maybe you want to know that I I guess. Um, but it's kind of, you know. It's irrelevant at that point. I mean, if that's right. what your if that's what your plans are for the day, I don't think having that posted on the bottle is really going to make a difference. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's just a, a, kind of a, an aside of a little bit of ridiculousness there. Um, right. I think there's also some licensing in there too. But uh, again, it's such an outrageous tax. I can't imagine anybody actually supporting that once they find out what that means. Um, right. uh, yeah, the but, other one, but. But they don't really ever find out what that means, Alex. That's that's the problem. Is the people well, that are passing laws regulating us don't even understand what it is that they're agreeing to. I think they uh, Washington State was one of the first ones that had language like this, if I remember correctly, and they had they had a certain cent per milligram tax and um, advocates there got in front of them and said, this is, you you might be thinking about the little number on the bottle that says, you know, 18 milligrams per milliliter Um, in terms, you might just be thinking about that little number, but really you have to consider the per milliliter uh, bit there. So take that tax times the amount of milligrams times the amount of milliliters in the bottle. And that's what you're talking about. So, So I, I, in some cases, I think it is just a you know an issue where people don't actually understand the measurements. Um, right. uh, but 
who knows with New Mexico. So, um, yeah, hopefully someone in New Mexico <laughs> breaks out a calculator and lets them know what's going on here. Um, but there is another tax bill, uh, SB 77. Uh, this is new. This was introduced. Um, this is pre-filed legislation, I believe. Um, and this is a 65% excise tax. Um, uh, again, I don't have a hearing for that or anything, but, uh, you know, 65% certainly appears to be more reasonable than four cents per milligram of nicotine. Um, so not a real option there anyway, but, uh, uh, yeah. So New Mexico looking at two tax bills this year and 30 day session, I guess what we've got, uh, let's see, when is the 18th? Uh, the 18th is a Thursday and that'll be, um, one, two, three weeks from this Thursday. So we got a little over three weeks left in New Mexico's legislative session for this year. Okay. (sighs) Moving right along. Um, I think we already talked about Maine the other week, but um, this is not... So the Maine tax bill, um, LD973, I guess we should probably just clear this up just in case. Um, So according to some legislative procedure article 330 or something like that this was placed in uh the legislative file or the senate file or house file something like that it was filed somewhere um and essentially in 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 the tracking program that we use in parentheses it it says dead Um, (laughs) but don't be fooled by that Again, we saw this last year a couple of times where people were celebrating that bills died, or, you know, the sponsor walked away from a bill or this and that. And then a couple of months later, it just comes back out of the yeah. blue. So, Resurgence of the zombie bills. It can always even, happen. Even though the state legislature page says dead, there's still some procedural magic that can happen, however unlikely, um, in order to bring it out of this file in the basement where it is, um, two thirds of the, uh, the house has to agree to revive it again, however, improbable, still not impossible. So, um, I've updated that to, to say the bill is not currently a threat, but, um, people in Maine should still be aware of, of the tax threat and by all means take the opportunity to, contact your lawmakers and educate them about vapor products. And if you're uh, feeling uh, particularly uh, inspired with gratitude, um, send them a thank you note for not taxing vapor products. Um, People love thank you notes. Oh yeah. Um, Let's see. What else do we got? Oh, yes, Virginia does have, uh, I'm sorry, Washington does have a a Tobacco 21 bill. Um, Just looking through my files, I I didn't do a legislative preview this year um, (laughs) because it was kind of unclear as to, you know, last year we have, 
whenever you have kind of a brand new session, you're going to get a lot of pre-filed legislation. Right. Um, this year, we didn't see a whole lot of pre-filed legislation. I, I'm pretty sure the New Mexico tax bill was the only pre-filed bill that I saw, you know, before January. Um, okay. So uh, a lot of this stuff is carried over. Um, but just looking at taxes, um, you know, we, got, we talked about Alaska, um, Hawaii. I have two tax bills there. Um, I think this bill in Iowa, I don't, I don't know if that carries over or not. So I, I don't think that's actually a threat. Um, Kentucky. Kentucky and West Virginia. I don't have a bill yet for West Virginia, right. um, as far as I know. But um, this is going to be something for people to follow because the governor is looking again to raise some revenues. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It uh, it it's like like you're swimming in it this year. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody wants money, and everybody thinks an easy way to do it is to tax vapor products, but I think they're finding out that the math makes it really hard. There's no way to standardize that and make it a reasonable tax and a reasonable money maker for the state. You know? I mean, reasonable for the people to pay and reasonable <clears throat> for the state to collect revenue on. It's just not performing the way they had hoped. Maybe that'll discourage uh, future legislative sessions, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other little bit. I, I haven't gotten around to issuing a local call to action for this yet. Um, this bit of uh, lawmaking magic is still in the, uh, I guess, in the editing phase. Uh, there's a little town in Vermont called Ludlow. And I spent some time during the blizzard watching a recording of a planning commission hearing. Um, <clears throat> the planning commission hearing takes place in what I imagine is sort of a multi-purpose activity room right. uh, in uh, what used to be a storefront on the main street of Ludlow, Vermont. Uh, small town. I'm sure it's very cute and, and mm -hmm. uh, pleasant place to be. But uh, they are looking at uh, prohibiting vapor retail shops in their community. Um, and I bring this up because <clears throat> I was actually contacted by somebody writing an article about this is, is how I found out about it. Um, the discussion goes from let's, let's talk about this ordinance prohibiting a vapor retail shop to well, you know, Vermont's going to be legalizing the marijuanas, right? <laughs> right. And it's it, it's just one of those very bright examples of how, you know, as the drug war winds down and states are becoming more permissive about marijuana in particular, that... The, the prohibitionists, I, I'm pretty sure there's a gene at some point to, <laughs> that makes a prohibitionist. Um, they are looking for other things to go after. And so nicotine is the next logical target. And um, so I, I, I really kind of just wanted to bring, 
that point up. I don't want to talk too long about it because we're already coming up at the 30 minute mark here, but, um, just once again, you know, a lot of these policy people, we all know this, I'm preaching to the choir here, but (laughs) you know, this, this has very little to do with public health and significant, substantially more to do with, um, lifestyle choices or I don't know, just generally stuff that you want to do in your leisure time. It's, and, and, and and of course more to do with prohibition and control. These are people that, um, yeah. They're the new Puritans is what they are. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Puritans. (laughs) Yep. Um, so yeah, you know, nicotine in their eyes is, is deviant behavior and, um, <clears throat> I will say just so it's out there in the ether as a recovering alcoholic and addict myself, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I do take a little bit of issue with people that want to demonize, uh, addiction and yeah. throw that word around like it's some sort of communicable disease. Um, so, you know, well, I mean, most, most policies, written by these people are they're people who've never experienced addiction in their lives and have no idea what it really means. I mean, I think if you were to talk about nicotine, you might want to talk about maybe, I I think it's a little bit of dependence, but I think a little bit of dependence is a lot different than an addiction. And it's a shame that they don't understand the real difference between the two. You know, I, I, anybody who's hung out with Carl for any amount of time, I, I right. think um, it, you might end up questioning. I, I <laughs> sort of ended up <laughs> questioning whether I've actually experienced addiction, um, right. and I've been through I've been through inpatient treatment for it. So, right. um, yeah, you know what we actually understand what we understand about the brain and what we understand about things like addiction is. Um, is developing and it's actually, you know, somewhat small in, in comparison to other, um, areas of, of, of biology and science and so on. So, um, you know, I, I think in general, I, I think people, I hope that eventually people come to a, a more broader consensus that, um, what we understand about addiction is, is, is really just, just beginning to learn, I think some yeah. very important details about it. Oh, yeah. Um, as far, you know, in terms of treatment and prevention and so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I, you know, when people start talking about how nicotine is the most addictive substance on the planet, your the little bells and whistles should be going off in your brain. Right. Um, that person is just parroting things that they've heard over and over again. There's really not much substance behind that. In fact, I was reading a, a, a photo posted on, on Twitter from somebody in the UK earlier. Um, and, and things that, that a lot of vapors who have really dug into this issue understand that, um, you know, we have years of, of, we have tons of studies that were done on nicotine replacement therapy to mm-hmm. talk about, you know, to understand whether or not these products would work. And right. of course they, you know, they established that the addiction liability or abuse liability with, with nicotine alone type products was actually remarkably low. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, you know, it, it really is con- concerning. It should concern everybody, not just smokers, not just vapors, but the way that these, um, p- 
public health advocates. I can't even say that without feeling weird. Um, air quotes. Way, Stick air, air yeah, quotes. The, the air quote public health advocates are throwing the magical properties of nicotine around is, is really distorting the public's understanding of science. So, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you a thousand percent. And they're distorting it to ensure that they still have a job, I think, more than they care about you or they care about your health. Yeah. That that's the other thing to I think think about when you when you read these statements. And then of course the really scary ones are the ones that actually believe it. Yeah. Well, I think this the scary one, yeah, the true believers are scary, but what's scarier is what percent of these people would still say and do these things without a paycheck. Also something to consider. Um yeah. So, does that seem like it's about it tonight, Alex? I think that will wrap it up. If I missed anything, I'll be sure to bring it up next time. I had okay. this thought in my head that I had a bunch of links that I wanted to just mention so that we would link to them in the description. But, uh, no, I think that does it for this week. Okay. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for everything you do for us. And we'll see you next Monday. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Night. Bye. Brought up an excellent point about addiction. It's just a shame most people don't uh, think about it that way. Yeah. Well, and these are the same people too that if you if you come back at them with, oh, I see you're holding a cup of Starbucks coffee in your hand. You have a caffeine addiction. Oh no, I don't. <laughs> that, that's that's not an addiction. I mean, and that is. Another point towards it is the things that they're rallying against are addictions, but the things that they need and they have to have in their life every day are not addictions. Well, uh, yeah. That's the scary part. The truly scary part is they only call something an addiction when it is not something they need. Exactly. Exactly. Um, do we want to do another story? Or you just want to talk until it's time to leave. Cause we're, we're ending this at eight on the dot tonight, folks. Well, then we better just talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, no, and Alex brought up, I thought really good points. If you don't know addiction, you don't know addiction. I, I had a brother who died a heroin addict. He died like last Christmas. Um, and if you've never witnessed it, you've never seen firsthand what these people will do to get their fix. Um, you have no business talking about addiction at all. At all. And there was a, a TED Talk that was really good. I forget who did it, but it was called Everything You Know About Addiction is Wrong. Was it Jonathan Hari? No, that couldn't have been who did it. Um, but it was about this man just trying to figure out how to deal with the members of his family who were addicts. And what he realized was that most people who were addicted were addicted to anything. Were very isolated and very lonely people. And with the drug laws and the things that we do, we tend to isolate those people more. But if you can 
let a lot of stuff go and and treat them like human beings that goes a long way towards helping them get to a state where they're not addicted which i thought was really great here was somebody who really wasn't a scientist really didn't have a large understanding of it who set out to find out what they could do to make the lives of people who were addicted better. And it it was really great. And I learned a lot from it. Oh, it was Jonathan Hari. Everything you know about addiction is wrong. Um, and it's great. Um, I fully, I highly recommend watching it, especially if you have someone in your family who is addicted to something or you know, or love an addict. It really is worth watching. It's well worth your time. Um, well, what was good with the whole vaping thing was, mm-hmm. yeah, when uh, Father Jack was telling off the, the <laughs> air quote public health people about yes. the difference between dependence and addiction. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, there is. There is a big difference. And yeah. and people don't think about Father that. Jack, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I absolutely adore that man. Um. It, I, I, the most, still the most embarrassing moment of my life was having to explain to Father Jack that that I had an e liquid that I that was called Nuns Buns. Nuns Buns. <laughs> yeah, that was that was still one of the most humiliating moments of my life. Um, but yeah, I mean, and this is a man that that runs treatment centers. Yes. You know, this is a man that that helps addicts every day, and mm-hmm. and these people want to look at him like he has no idea. When he lives this every day. Yep. If there's anyone who knows about addiction, it's definitely Father Jack Kearney. Oh, and, and for a point, in fact, um, you know, a lot of these people that, that are the, uh, air quotes, anti-tobaccoists, um, many of them are recovering smokers or reformed smokers or whatever the fuck they want to call themselves this week. And born again non-smokers. Yeah, and and it strikes me as funny that you don't really find that sort of biasness in a lot of other areas. Um, and and we'll take Alex for example. You know, Alex is a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex isn't out there beating on the drum to abolish alcohol. No, he's no. not. Alex doesn't have an issue with people that drink. Alex doesn't think less of people that drink. Nope. You know, and, and I just find it funny that we see all of this in in vaping. And when the things that these people are trying to drive into existence are not eliminating... tobacco they're in profiting from tobacco oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah trying to explain to people that this is not about health and safety and welfare this is about (laughs) money is is like running my head into a brick wall i mean you can lay it right out for them Mm -hmm. do you see this this is about dollar signs oh no it's not no it's not yes it is (laughs) <laughs> Look at this shit. It is about money. 
in the Western it's world, about, it's always about money. Yeah, well, I, exactly. I mean, and and that's the sad part. Because people who should really be getting addiction treatment, people who really need help, they're being virtually ignored. You know? Let's focus on the, the tobacco issue. Let's focus on vaping. No, what about people who are actually addicted to heroin? And don't give me that shit of, we'll give them Chantix, because Chantix will work good for them. That's bullshit. Chantix makes people kill themselves. That's the best that they have to offer the chemical people. That's the best the drug companies have to offer these people. That's bullshit. All that money that gets wasted prohibiting tobacco could be well spent helping people who actually have a disease. Yeah. Well, I mean, the one that always gets me is whenever any of the Puritans start going on about bans and cracking down on things, all you need to do to make them lose their shit is talk about Portugal. <laughs> Portugal is amazing. What they did when they decriminalized drugs there was amazing. I there's actually I think there's um oh god there's a video from the International Center for Science and Drug Policy and it's from 2011 and they show you all the statistics of people who are incarcerated for drug usage and you know not even serious crimes but like possession of small amounts of marijuana and it's like one out of every 5 males you know, it is incarcerated in the United States for this. One out of every five, I'm sorry, African-American males is incarcerated for this. Um, and it showed what happened with Portugal because they had escalating rates of HIV. They had joblessness, homelessness. All of that started to go away when they stopped treating these people like they were criminals and like they were separate from society. And they started treating people like people Things started to get better. And uh, they decriminalized yeah. small personal amounts of like marijuana or other drugs for your own personal use. Like you didn't get in trouble for having that. They also oh, set up um, safe havens. So injecting users, there's right, little street places with a decent area for them to go and mm -hmm. inject up and get rid of the needles safely and all that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so disease rates and everything have fallen radically. Yeah. The best interview I've seen about it was with the ex-chief of police, who was horrified when it was suggested. Um, but now, all these years later, it's what, nearly 15 years now, and he's like, yeah. no, I was wrong. It works. It does work. works a lot better than putting people in a cage. Yeah. It works a lot pe better than shaming people. And if you dehumanize people, they are dehumanized. They and you then yep. have to deal with the issues that causes. Yep. And so many people don't want to do that, which is just ridiculous. And it's a shame. This is not how society should be acting. I don't think. We're all people, right? Yeah. We all have our things. Oh, I I couldn't get through the day without a cup of coffee. Of course, my cup of coffee, you could stand a spoon up in. It's like tar. Uh, but I only have one. 
but I need it to get through the day. And if I don't have it, I have a massive headache. Does that make me an addict? No, you're dependent. Exactly. It's the same with nicotine. Yeah. I'm dependent on nicotine. Sorry. I, I, I drink hardly any coffee. It's only three or four pots a day. <laughs> yeah. That used to, I used to drink coffee by the pots. And what really surprised me was when, when I stopped smoking, mm-hmm. my caffeine intake dropped dramatically. Yeah, so right. did mine. Um, and, you know, and I mean, and Jan, you know, you have, and I got to tell you, January the 8th was six years that I had quit smoking. Right. Yeah. Awesome. And, and on that day, I really couldn't appreciate it at the time. I was a little busy. But I have to tell you that, you know, people that think that it, it goes away, um, I... We actually, on our way back from Erie, the one night, I said to Paul, I said, get off at the exit and stop at the store. And he said, okay. I said, I'm buying a pack of cigarettes. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. I said, stop at the fucking store. Um, and had that store had Marble Light 100s mm-hmm. in it, had they had mm-hmm. carried Marble Light 100s, I would have bought a pack of cigarettes and I would have smoked the sons of bitches. Wow. I, 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 yeah, I really would have. Um, and I have had a lot of high stress situations in the past six years and right. none of them affected me the way this one did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, honest to God, I would have bought a pack of cigarettes and I would have, yeah, I would have lit them up. Um, so, and you would think that six years later, I wouldn't have had that craving, that urge, that whatever. But it was there. Um, was I unhappy with my vaping? No. I I was not the least bit unhappy with my vaping experience. Right. Um, I just really needed, I needed a damn smoke. And uh, they didn't have them, so I got back in the truck, and I said, they don't have them, let's go. And he's like, you want me to go to another store? And I'm like, nah, it's okay. I see, this is why I'm quite happy, um, because obviously I suffer from stress and anxiety. Right. But yeah, it's handy to whack a device up to 80 watts and get a really good hit of nicotine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, they ignore all the science that says nicotine isn't really bad for you. It's a neuroprotectant. It helps with Alzheimer's disease and, you know, synapse degeneration. It helps with all kinds of things. It helps with Crohn's and colitis. Um, and yet well, it, they want to the just ignore that. the memory and concentration things that are really important to me. Right. I have that sort of degeneration. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And these people would be happy to take all of that from us. And... They would never have a second thought about it, how it affected us, how we felt about it, because they've convinced themselves that we're not really people. We're just, what was the worst thing I read about us a few years ago? We were slobbering nicotine addicts. Some of the best uh, insults, yeah, have been from Chapstick down in Oz. (laughs) He's just vile. 
with the way he speaks about people. Yeah, and what's kind of amazing to me is I don't like I don't like chapstick. Um, <laughs> I'm not a fan of his, but um, what really amazed me is when they wanted to get rid of smoking on hospital grounds yeah. in New South Wales. And he was like, no, 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 these people are adults. They have, this is their home. They have a right to have a cigarette on the hospital ground. I almost fell down. I said, he does not get to be reasonable on this because he's completely irrational about everything else. Oh, oh my God. You said hospital. Yes. I sat in the hospital up in Erie. Mm-hmm. And vape the entire time I was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't an asshole about it. Um, it wasn't that I was. I really even hit it um, right. to the extent that one of the nurses um, looked at me and said, "Oh, you vape?" <laughs> and I oh. said, "Yeah." And she goes, "What device is that?" Or no, she said, "What mod is that?" And I said, um, "This is a DNA two hundred And she goes, "Really? She? How do you like that?" <laughs> And I mean, we're not talking in in a regular room here either, folks. We're talking about intensive care. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you were saying, Michael in chat was saying that there was one good study about Crohn's and colitis with nicotine being good, and you won't hear anymore. The only place that's doing actually unbiased studies on nicotine would be the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Just FYI, people, you want some actual honest data on nicotine and its use in the body that's the only place you're going to get it because it has nothing to do with government funding it's privately funded well weirdly cancer research uk seem to be doing funding at least not Hmm. themselves they seem to be doing a lot of work on nicotine but uh, that's because some of the nicotinoids might be cancer destroying prevent of course yeah so yeah well yeah i mean and that only stands to reason but um if you look at the amount of patents that the drug companies have filed for just individual proteins that are in nicotine or individual molecules it's staggering go to google and type it in you'll be looking at the ship for days so they know it's hospital thing uh, yes i had my first group for mindful thinking uh, last week to try and help with anxiety and stuff and yeah we're told oh we'll be having a break if anybody smokes you can't do it in the building but you've got to go outside because yeah UK well the Scottish hospitals (laughs) all of them but one um, region banned vaping indoors Mm -hmm. um they're, most of them are looking at it again after the Public mm-hmm. Health England report, but mm-hmm. at the moment, yeah, you've got to go outside. So yeah, I went outside during the break. There were three of us. All three of us were on e-cigs. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> but it doesn't help people quit. No, of course not. Just, just ask that, you know... <sighs> God, just ask the man who finally left aerospace engineering. Thank God he did that. <laughs> I mean, geez, thank God he did that. Because can you imagine the calculations he'd be making for rockets and stuff now? Oh, God. 
Jeez, if they ever work, let him work on um, civilian airliners. And here's the new Boeing. Oh, it's exploded. <laughs> the wings <laughs> fell off. It's like, oh. Shit, it dropped out of the sky like a brick. So, so basically, every time a plane fell out of the sky, you'd you'd hear some like cartoon voice go, "Chapman, <laughs> um, I'm not Chapman. Uh, Glance. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I'm surprised that these people have gotten as far as they've gotten with their quote public health careers. And it, Chapman well, was supposed that- to have. It's good they're getting a lot of heat the last few weeks. <laughs> well, Chapman was supposed to have retired. Why doesn't he shut the fuck up? Oh, it's the smarminess he uses. Oh, I, I, I don't work for the government. How can, how can my opinion be doing anything? It's just my opinion. It's like <laughs> you're one of their ex-directors, you prick. <laughs> <laughs> It's not so much that. It's that he said, oh, I'm done. You know, I'm retired. I'm done. And everybody went, oh, thank God. And yet he's still releasing papers. Why? Thought you were done. You know, when Elvis left the building, he left the fucking building. To be fair, Chapman does spend more time on windmills now than he does on anything else. Because that's what he's paid to do. Um, (laughs) um, It was brought up that he keeps saying, oh, he'd happily meet with people to have sensible discussions. And, yeah, the all the pro-vaping people are like, well, we keep asking you and you keep ignoring us. And my response to that was, maybe you should hide behind one of the wind farms and he won't see you coming. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's the best way to settle things, really. Sit down in a room and talk like adults, but... I don't none, none of the big aunties will sit down with anyone who doesn't automatically share their views. It's insane. Yeah, that's that's no way to further society. It's anti-society, anti-science, anti-logic. Yeah. Yeah, and I think somewhere there's a violation of human rights in there. I just haven't sat down and figured out what part of this violates human rights, but I know it does. So there's always that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and when I say that, I'm talking about the things like people who are institutionalized, you know what I mean? Not being able to vape on hospital grounds and yet they're not well enough to be in society. That sort of thing. That's just, well, the the Scottish hospital thing is ridiculous. Um, you now have people in surgical gowns with uh, drips having to walk a quarter of a mile in rain, snow, whatever, to stand off the hotel property to smoke. You know, there was... And it, it's really bad because I, I know there's actually a list somewhere of people who've had to leave hospitals and stuff and gotten hypothermia, died, been attacked. This sort of thing is ridiculous. You should at least be able to do it on on hospital grounds, at least where there's security. Well, there's a newspaper article last week. Uh, I can't remember where it was, but the residents in a street next to a hospital had applied to the council to ban people from smoking in that street 
because all the people from the hospital were coming off the hospital grounds and were standing smoking. Of course, the majority of them were staff. But <laughs> yeah, luckily, the council turned down this opportunity. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The local politician was saying to the hospital trust, okay, you don't want it next to the building, but why don't you have a smoking shelter in your grounds people can use? And then they're not spreading it out onto the public streets. But that's it. I mean, it's the the kicking it out the grounds altogether. That was your Puritans. Yeah. So, no, yeah. they're they're not they're not my Puritan. Well, they are my Puritans. They they all came over on the same freaking boat. But they all came from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> they all, all came from your country. Yes, they're it's, all they are the the successors of Cromwell. And his crazies. Severe Calvinists. Yeah. Well, they were the last of the religious fanatics. And then they just passed that... We still still have Calvinists in Scotland. I'm so sorry. Um, Yeah, there's a couple of them uh, are politicians. And they show up occasionally on TV spouting craziness. So they're basically like the politicians in Utah. Also overly religious and kind of... Um, instable. Yes. <laughs> Unstable. Yeah. It's crazy. We, I don't want to say we elect these people because I don't think we do. Um, I don't know where these self-professed experts come from, but they just need to be beaten back with a stick because uh, the new Puritans, they're making everybody's life miserable. There's no call for it. There's no need for it. It's about time their era ends, and it's time that we have the era of real science, real rational science again. We need it. We, we don't need to be befuddled and lied to by these people. It needs to stop. Well, I mean, they're not making it easy. Uh, I, 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 I keep thinking I want to build a wire welder. Your quote's in there. Uh, and it could be used for other purposes uh, involving <laughs> touching the electrodes to somebody. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and every but every country has them. We have crazies here. You've got crazies there. Every country has their crazy fanatics. Um, I keep I keep apologising really... to Australians for uh, us letting chopstick go over there but yeah but, but then we took in we took in mckee so yeah. <laughs> i guess it was an even trade nut for nut um <laughs> <laughs> Mc, isn't mckee the one that thinks there should be no advertising of any sort ever no, no, that, like, that's Hastings. Even... oh yeah but why do i picture them together because they appear together a lot or used to that must be it yeah they used to turn up yeah. on all the spots about e-cigarettes you'd have mickey and hastings i used to refer to them as stan and ollie because <laughs> that's what they look like standing next to each other um oh, yeah <laughs> and make about as you much know, sense uh, i don't know laurel and hardy were great they were great they were geniuses they were visionaries in their time these guys not so much yeah. yes it's almost eight i know <laughs> um okay 
well, thanks for listening, you guys. And we will see you next week. Advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Good night, guys. We'll see you next week.